Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On this episode, we're going to continue our discussion of the overlap of biblical counseling and domestic abuse ministry, and we're going to discuss ethics of a counselor today. But before we jump into that content, you know I'm going to remind you that if you're benefiting from the things you're hearing on the PeaceWorks podcast, then PeaceWorks University is your best next step. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community, and it has resources that are designed to help you respond to domestic abuse in a gospel-centered fashion. There's a healthy, fantastic community of people helpers uh, that meet together regularly. There's live Q&As. There's shepherding team roundtables. There's master classes from uh, experts in the field. There are resources that are um, collected and organized for you in a fashion that's a lot easier to navigate than the PeaceWorks podcast. So again, if you've been benefiting from the PeaceWorks podcast, well, PeaceWorks University is your best Next step, you can learn more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. All right, so today, uh, this episode, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the overlap of biblical counseling and domestic abuse work. We've been getting a lot of questions, and um, I can only speak from you know our experience as biblical counselors and how we interpret and understand and operate uh, within the things that we've learned. And so in the last episode, we talked about, you know, it's kind of those four big rocks of, of our movement, those basics, uh, and how we see them fitting into domestic abuse ministry. Today, I want to talk a little bit about ethics. It's going to probably be a rapid fire podcast because I, I did find a list from some of my training about biblical counseling ethics. I'm going to try to walk through that list. I've got 10 points in front of me, uh, just to add some clarity, because there there are a lot of questions that are happening more in casual conversations where people will ask me, especially my friends who are licensed, well, are there any ethical requirements for biblical counseling? And and I don't know that there's any organization or um, board or anyone who's like governing people in this. I don't I don't know that anyone's holding folks really accountable for this. But yeah, there are some basic ethical considerations that um, at least I was asked to consider, and I think many other biblical counselors have been asked to consider. So I just want to walk through some of those and apply them to the work that we do in domestic abuse work. So the first would be the Bible is the ultimate authority. It kind of comes back to last week's discussion. So biblical counselors believe that the Bible's our ultimate authority for life and for counseling. So we have a sufficiency view Therefore, all counseling should be rooted in the Bible. And so I actually think that is uh, an ethical principle. I think that's part of our ethics. I do think it would be unwise, um, and for some it would be unethical, to step into another realm of counseling when you haven't been trained, equipped, or, or licensed. So for instance, for, for many years, I was certified as a group facilitator in batterer intervention. My biblical counseling training helped me in that world tremendously. However, um, it would be unwise 
for me to host uh, groups based on that model and say I was a facilitator when I hadn't been trained in that model. So it would be inappropriate for me to say I am this when I wasn't certified in that. Um, it would be unhelpful for me, say, to to do EMDR with my uh, clients, for instance, if I wasn't trained in EMDR, or for me to uh, promote myself as a trauma-informed therapist if I haven't received trauma-informed training, if that makes sense. That's just you know basic ethics. So when we say we're biblical counselors, one of the things we are agreeing to or saying the Bible is the root of our counsel. So as you heard me in the last episode, that doesn't mean that we ignore observational truth or that we don't bring other training that we've participated in into our counseling relationships, but it does mean that our primary role is that of a biblical counselor who roots our counseling foundations in, um, in the Bible, that it is central to the work that we do. Number two is confidentiality. Um, ethically speaking, this is a big one, and I think it's one that's a bit misunderstood from an outside cultural perspective. Because a licensed counselor um, or a licensed social worker will have state-mandated aspects of con- confidentiality. There'll be expectations set on them by an outside institution. Um, confidentiality in the biblical counseling world should be stated up front. Like I think if you're entering into a biblical counseling relationship and they don't talk about confidentiality, you absolutely want to ask questions about it. It should be on their informed consent forms uh, because biblical counselors are committed, should be committed to maintaining confidentiality, to protecting the privacy of the people that they meet with, except where they are required by law to report or when it's necessary uh, to prevent harm, or where there's a biblical mandate that requires um, additional people. And I think that is one of the areas where our work in domestic abuse has been criticized as biblical counselors, rightfully so to some degree, and I think where there's confusion. We are not required to hold everything in confidence. Certainly, if there's a legality, such as childhood sexual abuse, uh, elder abuse, the abuse of the disabled, like other professionals, we are mandated reporters. And so certainly, we have to report um, aspects of child abuse, elder abuse, and the abuse of the disabled. Uh, Second to that, that is a little different for us is there are aspects such as Matthew 18 or uh, other aspects of gossip and, and community within the scriptures that would compel us to share information. Uh, what I do or have done in the past on my informed consent is I let people know that that's a possibility such as uh, if you're a member of my church and you denounce the faith and we've been walking through that in counseling, but you have decided that you know you are really going to follow. You're going to follow Islam now, for instance. Like you are converting to Islam, and that's been part of our counseling discussions. At some point, I will have to bring that to the elder board because that's a disqualifying factor in the um, in the Constitution in the bylaws. And so there are aspects in which uh, we will involve other 
parties. Um, that's not just legal matters, but in biblical counseling, it could include the elders. It could include other people uh, to confront sin. I do think that that is somewhat misused uh, in biblical counseling. I think sometimes we talk too much uh, and too soon, but that should be lined out in your informed consents. But overall, uh, ethically speaking, we are asked to maintain confidentiality, that we're not to blab what we're hearing um, within the, the context of the church outside of biblical instruction or, of course, legal requirements. Uh, three is respect for agency or autonomy. This is also one that I think we would do well as a movement to embrace, especially in the work of domestic abuse. Biblical counselors are called to respect the autonomy of their counselee or client and seek to empower them to make their own decisions. Now, we do that by guiding them in biblical principles. So biblical counseling will rely on biblical principles. And unlike some of our licensed friends, right, who don't counsel with an agenda, we do. We counsel with an agenda, but we can't force people into that agenda. And I think there are some within our tribe who do that. They try to bottleneck people into making decisions based on their desires rather than allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work of conviction and drawing people into conformity with Christ. Now, yes, I have entreated, I have entreated, I have begged, I have pleaded with individuals that I've worked with, knowing full well that the decision laid before them in the word of God was far superior to the decisions that they had previously been making or seemed to want to continue to make. However, there is nothing I can do to coerce them into making, quote unquote, the right decision. In fact, that violates a lot of principles, uh, but especially some theological principles that we're trying to communicate, especially in domestic abuse work. I cannot bully the bully, and I certainly don't want to control a victim. Coercion is not part of our arsenal or shouldn't be. Now, unfortunately, when you hear when you hear stories of biblical counselors who are dangerous, who have given dangerous advice, sometimes you'll hear about coercion and threat um, and some of the tactics that we would consider unethical from what I was trained, it violates our ethics. So again, the Bible's our authority. We have uh, aspects of biblical confidentiality. We really promote agency or should autonomy, uh, even though we do give biblical principles. Sometimes the counseling relationship ends because the counselee and the counselor are at an impasse. There is a biblical standard that we're holding true as the counselor, and there's an unwillingness on the counselee's part to abide by that biblical standard, and sometimes that requires a referral to another counselor, or sometimes it requires an end to the relationship, uh, but ultimately we are called to respect that person's agency. Uh, non-discrimination uh, should be part of our ethics. Uh, we really shouldn't limit our availability to people, but we should be uh, upfront about our beliefs, and so biblical counselors uh, should not discriminate based on ethnicity or gender or even sexual orientation or uh, theology, but we should be upfront about our belief system. We, we can walk away, and we can say, I'm not a really good fit for you, right? So we don't want to discriminate and say, this group's not welcome and this tribe is not welcome, but we need to be upfront and honest. Uh, so, for instance, for me, 
you know, if I'm approached and I was approached at one point by a, um, a oneness, a oneness Pentecostal, for instance, well, there are some pretty significant theological differences between myself and a oneness Pentecostal or what some would call a Jesus only Pentecostal. Now, could we have worked together? Possibly, but without the theological agreement regarding the role and nature of the Holy Spirit, we would have had a very difficult time when it comes to the transformative aspects of how I counsel, if that makes sense. And so um, do I say I I won't work with oneness Pentecostals because I have a disdain for oneness? No, of course not. I think I should be up front with them and say, hey, I'm a Trinitarian. Um, I am not going to deviate from that. And my counsel is really going to be central to Trinitarian theology. So, you know, I don't think we're going to be a good fit. And I, and I think that is consistent with the non-discrimination uh, aspects of our counseling, is that we want to be upfront with individuals as to who we are and what we believe and why our beliefs are so central to the counseling that we offer, because biblical counseling isn't a one-size-fits-all um, type of approach. Competence, uh, number five, uh, hopefully I can get through all 10 of these. Competence, biblical counselors uh, should strive to maintain the highest level of competence in our, um, in our counseling, and we do that by continually trying to improve. There is a big difference between someone who is confident to counsel and someone who is competent to counsel. And I know that's the title of Jay's famous book, uh, Competent to Counsel, which is really um, a, a statement. It's a, it's a thesis that we have what we need for life and godliness, that believers can help each other. I would say that the Romans fifteen fourteen passage, the, where we draw that idea that I'm fully confident that you are competent to instruct one another is in the context of mature believers. So Romans 14, 15, that, that, that dialogue of Paul with the church is about distinguishing between the weak and the strong and the immature and the mature believers. Romans 15, 14 is directed to mature believers. I, I think you guys, you mature believers are competent to instruct one another. Like you're really ready to, to carry on. I think Galatians 6 reiterates that idea that if uh, anyone's caught in a sin, you who are mature should restore such a one. And so I would contend that the severity of a problem requires a significance of maturity. And so uh, as you move up the severity ladder of and complexities of problems, you're going to want mature Christians and believers and seasoned believers to be addressing that problem. And so competence uh, is not simply about confidence. I feel really good about my abilities. I took, you know, I took a weekend course at, you know, McGillicuddy Baptist Church, and now I want to help someone with their um, sexual affections. Um, and maybe you can, maybe you can't. I would be much more comfortable as the problem becomes more significant and complex to have someone seasoned and and mature maybe um, along the journey a little longer handling those cases. And I think that's at the heart of competence, and that's an ethical consideration for us. So am I honest with myself is how I answer that 
or respond to that point. Am I, do I understand that the scriptures are sufficient, but I may not be for this case? Uh, am I willing to learn? Am I continuing to be a learner? And those are some things I learned from some of the old timers in biblical counseling that have helped me tremendously. And I think this is something in domestic abuse that is a proof of concept. I think we've proven this. I think if you look at the literature that we have seen developed in the last 10 years in our movement regarding domestic abuse, we, we would be remiss if we, we did not recognize that case wisdom has brought about more clarity and greater competence and reverting back to some of the pre-case wisdom days is, is going to produce unhealthy, unhelpful, and dangerous counsel when we have all of this good case wisdom from good people who believe what we believe about the Scripture and about the human heart, developing processes and experience that can aid us, that can help us do better. And so I think that's a key element of competence. We should continue to be learning, developing our competencies. Uh, Six, informed consent. So um, biblical counselors should obtain informed consent from their uh, counselees before beginning counseling. Now, I understand that some biblical counseling is just one anothering. It's just just being friends, spiritual friends, right? And that is good. We want that. But if you're in a more formal, corrective, directive environment of biblical counseling, you should have informed consent, ensuring that the people we're working with understand the nature of the relationship. And that goes back to the idea of confidentiality um, and sufficiency of scripture. I I want people to know who I am and what I do uh, and not make assumptions about me and the work that I do, because I think that's unhelpful. I don't think it's a problem with them. Um, I think if I'm not giving informed consent, like if I'm not offering that, here's the information about me. Do you want to engage in this relationship knowing who I am, the nature of what I do, um, the qualifications that I have or don't have, and the limits to my own confidentiality within the context of the local church? I think if biblical counselors from a formal perspective, don't give informed consent, have clear expectations of who they are and what they do, then especially in domestic abuse cases, this can be incredibly dangerous and harmful as a victim may come in with certain expectations or an abuser may come in with certain expectations that are ultimately not going to be met because they're holding you to a standard that you yourself are not held to, whether it be confidentiality or licensure or what have you. Uh, or they don't understand your your mandated reporting requirements, or they don't understand um, the the overlaps of care that may be required, especially in domestic abuse cases when we talk about building teams. So informed consent is going to include things like, you know, we may discuss this case with a variety of people. We may make referrals. You know, I will tell you when we're going to do that. I will ask you about doing that but we may make multiple referrals in a case of domestic abuse, whether it be to law enforcement, to shelters, to support groups, to accountability groups, uh, to, to online resources, to other counselors that may be more equipped to handle certain aspects of your care than I can. And so being able to have that informed consent is, is important. And it's a, it's an ethical consideration. We don't want people to be deceived. Uh, seven, uh, we, we believe in referral. And that's something that I think a lot of folks would su- be surprised by 
that that would be on my list of biblical counseling ethics, and that is biblical counselors must be prepared to refer counselors or clients to other counselors. Now, for some of us, that may mean a horizontal recommendation. I want you to go from this biblical counselor to this biblical counselor. For others of us, and I would fall into the second category, it may be it may be lateral, like move from this biblical counselor to this biblical counselor, but it may also be, I also need you or would like you to see your family doctor. I would uh, like you to see this particular professional counselor, this licensed counselor friend of mine who who works specifically, say, with attachment disorder or um, has a lot of history with the foster care system that I don't have or perhaps does some trauma work that I'm not equipped to do or perhaps is an expert in um, childhood sexual assault, which is something that I've made many referrals to over the years, you know, working with perpetrators who have co-occurring issues. They're violating someone else, but they have childhood sexual assault in their past. Um, That's not something that I address in our work, Uh, but I do refer that out. Sometimes we've had simultaneous counseling where they're being seen to process the childhood sexual assault that they experience while at the same time being held accountable by me. So referral is part of our system or should be part of our system. Um, Decision-making biblical counselors are committed, should be committed to making ethical decisions to seek to resolve conflicts in a matter consistent with biblical principles. And I will say that sometimes, um, sometimes this gets abused because I don't think we understand what we're saying here. Um, And we end up just going to, someone who's going to collude with us rather than, and this, this applies to domestic abuse and sexual assault in particular friends. It is right. It is correct for a biblical counseling center, a church that does biblical counseling to insist upon third party review when there is uh, instances of sexual assault, for instance, within the context of the local church, especially when it comes to leadership. And so part of our decision-making is we have to make ethical decisions based upon the biblical standards and the care of the people involved, not the protection of an institution. So when our primary response is we have to protect the institution and we have to protect members of the institution, I think we run into problems, especially in cases of abuse. And then reliance on the Holy Spirit, um, or Holy Spirit dependence would be another ethical consideration. Biblical counselors should make prayer the first work, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit should be prevalent in their counseling, recognizing that true healing, true transformation can only come through the power of God. And so for some of us, we were trained um, using the phrase, we are the little C counselor, the Holy Spirit is the big C counselor. And that is an ethical consideration. And the reason why is one of the traps we can fall into is when we think we're the authority. And when a pastor or a counselor becomes more authoritative in your life than the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of Christ's word, that's problematic. And it can be very dangerous in cases of abuse where we can give insight and direction based on what we want. Rather, again, than what the scriptures are promoting. Well, I hope that was helpful. I, I want biblical counseling to be a tool that is both helpful and beneficial and life-giving to victims of domestic abuse. And that is, 
confrontational but hope-giving to perpetrators of domestic abuse. And I actually think returning to some of our roots when it comes to our values, our theology, and even our ethics will serve us well in the coming days as we attempt to stay in our lane, do our work well, and serve people who are hurting and those who are hurting others. So I hope this was helpful today. Look forward to uh, continuing our conversation soon. Thank you again for being part of the PeaceWorks podcast. Until next time, God bless.